0: All right, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Awesome. All right, if you would turn your Bibles, uh, two passages to, to dog ear. Uh, James chapter 1, starting in verse 19, and also, also, sorry, also Matthew chapter 7. Um, if you're joining us online, I'm so sorry for all the technical difficulties. That's what happens when Donald takes vacation, and I get stuck back there. But um, we got it all working out. Glad you're with us. Um, you don't have to have your, side, your phones or computers sideways anymore. We got it all figured out. And uh, we're excited to be rolling together today. So let me pray for us as we get started. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that we get to dive into your word together. And God, I ask that um, as, we, as we talk about James some more today, God, I pray that we're able to take it beyond these walls. God, that you, you do a number in our hearts, um, give, us, give us this ideas, give us passion, give us excitement for, for taking your word beyond this place, into our, um, out of our lives and into the lives of others, God, and that we're able to bless and be a part of the community you place us in. So God, we thank you, we love you, and everybody said, yeah. amen. So if you were here last week, uh, you know that we've talked about uh, James chapter 1 some more, and um, I got news for you, we're still going to be in James chapter 1 this week. Um, James chapter one sets up a whole lot for what two, three, four, and five uh, talk about, and and I love that we're going to dive in and unpack some more stuff that we touched on a couple weeks ago. Uh, last week we talked about testing and persevering, and, and I'll tell you, man, this this last week and even into this week, there's a lot of people right now going through some tests, a whole lot of people going through um, some medical issues and life issues and and marriage issues, and so just as, as you're praying. Um, pray, pray for the people in this church. Pray for the people that, that you see in this room. Pray for the people that you don't see in this room. There is a lot of testing going right, on right now, and a lot of people are, I know are in need of strength persevering through these things. So pray for each other, because um, like I said, there's a lot of testing, and it's not easy, it's not fun stuff. But I know that uh, we have an opportunity to see God's incredible hand at work through all these tests that we're going through. Now, from the very start, we talked last week, James is really encouraging us to rejoice in the midst of these tests. And we, we unpacked that last week, the, do we really find joy in the testing and joy in the persevering? And, and we learned that um, adversity calls us to go higher, to be greater, to trust deeper, even when it's hard. Um, but there's, there's this awesome message that points us towards the eternal promise that we have in Christ. Now, there's another important message that he talks about for believers all over the world in areas where there's this ongoing persecution, and James addresses a lot of that here. So this week, we're going to finish chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 next week, but, but he gives us another aspect of what to do in these pressing times, what he wanted the people to do in these pressing times. And we're going to unpack his main point that, that talks a lot about taking action. A lot about, you know, being, being a man of your word or a woman of your word and doing what you're t- uh, told to do instead of just hearing things and letting it pass on by. Now, if you're low in patience, you may really enjoy today's message. Do we have anyone here that actually is? You, you would say, if I say, who has patience? You, you would not put your hand up. So who does, who does not have patience? Oh, yeah, there we go. All right. Everyone's like, all right, let's get to it already. That's what James says in this passage. Let's get to it. If you're low in patience, this is going to be for you, because he develops this theme and expands his thoughts that pull through the rest of the book on do not wait, now is the time to act. And the section we'll look at today is where he says this all begins. Now it's important to remember, over the next few weeks as we talk about this, James was a really good pastor. He really, really loved his congregation. He loved the body of Christ. He loved the message of Jesus, and his job was to make sure people were doing what Jesus said to do but his letter is motivated by love and compassion and the health of his church, so he's very blunt. He just says what you have to do, not a lot of room for interpretation, just go for it. And it almost seems like James has a lack of patience. James is very much, I don't, I don't want you to wait on this, we don't have time to wait, I just want you to hear this and do it. And his motivation is coming from what he sees as the persecution of the church. He knows they don't have time to wait. They must act now. This is the culture around them. Time is short. The mission is urgent, and the truth is they just didn't have the luxury to live in a lukewarm faith, the luxury to sit back and watch. It was the time to do things, and in many cases, this was a life-and-death choice in the church in that time, which begs the question for us today as we start, would we be more inclined to act on the teaching of Jesus if our life was on the line? Let that sink in for a second. <clears throat> Would you be more willing, would we be more willing or inclined to act on the teaching of Jesus if our lives were on the line? How would that change things for us? If it literally looked at you and said, your life depends on this, you must do this, would it change how you do it? Would it change if you did it? Would external persecution really motivate your faith? Now, have you ever been in a situation where you you know that's the, the case, where if you don't do something now, something bad could happen? You know right now, I must act now or this will happen. If any of you served in the military, that was your everyday life. You must act now. If you're a first responder, you live in this. Every time that phone rings, you know there's something you have to do now. And it's not just military first responders. We come through these times in our lives where where you get those calls, right? You get those moments where something happens and you know, now I have to act. I don't have time to wait. don't have time to stop. don't have time to explore the options and see what's going to play out. Sometimes you just, you know, now is the time I have to go forward with it. And, and you either have to rely on your instinct or whatever knowledge you have in that point to make the decision knowing time is not with you. At this point, that's how James is talking. When he writes this letter, time is not on their side. If people don't act quickly, it could mean dire consequences for the church. So in church today, we come across these same situations. Now, no one is actively hunting us down in this church, But there's an important mission that we're all a part of. We we have a mission where we live in a community. We we have a state. We have have a world that desperately needs Jesus. And all you have to do is click on social media to see how desperately the world needs Jesus. I know that um, Bill Johnson, the pastor of um, Bethel Church, his wife passed away this last week. She was battling cancer. And as I was reading in, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds Bethel Church. But what was crazy to see is on this post of Bethel Church, people assaulting Bill Johnson's theology on the post about the passing of his wife. And in that moment, it was like, all right, you may agree with him or you may not agree with him. This is not a statement in favor of or against Bethel Church and their theology, but it was a notice of, man, if there's ever a time where someone can come up to someone who believes in Christ and just say, man, we are hurting for you because you lost your wife, people were not doing it. And that's not everyone. It was a handful. But, but when, I wrote, when I read those, my heart broke for just, man, people we just need Jesus. We just need to show the love of Jesus in this time. And in that moment, that was not the time to act that way. Not the time to assault someone on a theological difference as he's mourning the loss of his wife. I think we, we have too important of a mission to act the wrong way. We, we have too important of a mission to let back, sit back and let other people do things that, that they shouldn't be doing. We have a very important responsibility to live out this life that God has called us to live and to do it the way Jesus modeled for us. And James says that a lot. A sense of importance, purpose, and urgency. He doesn't want us. He didn't want the church then, and, I, and we don't want now the church to get to get comfortable and compliant and just, just kind of lazy and complacent with what's going on. We have to be, we have to be a people that move to action but that action that shows the love of Jesus with every interaction that we have with people. So I ask again, would we be more inclined to act on the teachings of Jesus and show this love that he showed if our lives were literally on the line? Would external persecution motivate our faith? And, and I know that we're not going to fully answer that question today because that's something we're going to wrestle with and struggle with as your faith grows and as you go on in your life, but I think it's something we can all examine in times. And we've got to start somewhere. So, James one nineteen, actually James one we we'll, we'll start in a second, but if you have kids, or if at some point in your life you were a kid, so we did it there, I just brought everybody into the conversation, right? Nobody can say it doesn't apply. At some point if you were a kid, this may have applied to you, or if you've had kids, you've said this. Have you ever asked one of your kids, hey, go do this, and you're pretty certain they heard you? As a matter of fact, they looked at you and said, yes, or yes, I will. I will do it. And then they didn't do it. But you know they heard you. They, they had the whole, yes, I will. We do this all the time. And um, Avery will always be like, Avery, did you? She goes, oh, oh yeah. Like you told her a month ago, but you told her five seconds ago. But have you ever done that? You know you, know you got the, uh, the audible response, but hours later, that thing you asked never got done. Or maybe that's you. Someone asked you to do something and you said, yes, I will do it. And then time went on and you forgot to go do that thing. Guilty, right? It happens. But either way, there's something specifically annoying about being ignored. Nobody likes that feeling, right? Like being ignored. If you ever have to ask that phrase to someone, are you ignoring me right now? Usually it makes it, you feel bad. Sometimes it makes the other person feel bad because they don't mean to ignore you. Or sometimes maybe they did mean to ignore you. And then that's a whole other conversation you get to have, right? But nobody likes the feeling of being ignored. In this case, no one likes being heard acknowledged and then ignored that's even worse but this is a bit of the idea behind listening and doing that James talks about we're going to unpack that specifically today listening and doing James 1:22 says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says there is so much in that one chunk right there that can be applied in our lives do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says So the first thing is this, listening and doing. Now, we all know this. This is not new news. There's a big difference between listening and a big difference between listening and doing. One can be passive and the other can be active, but you need them both, right? You you need both of these to go hand in hand. How many times do we, maybe it's ourselves, you listen to instruction, you hear every word, but then you go and do nothing. You go and do nothing. No action steps, no movement made, just a lot of information gets downloaded into that head of yours, and then it turns into nap time or this time or something else time. Just, you know, you don't, you don't go act on it. I think all of us have done that at, at some point or another. The idea of listening refers to someone who sits in the audience passively listening. Now, again, if, I said if you have kids, you understand what James means when he, when he refers to this as passive listening. Uh, it's, it's a bit equivalent of, of like cafeteria-style listening, right? Someone says something like, oh, I'll take a little bit of that. They keep talking, uh, whatever. Oh, yep, that was a good one. I'll take some of that. You know, this passive thing, you only hear what you want to hear. You, you take on only what you want to take, but you miss the main course of what is really trying to be said. It's like your kid saying, I just want the dessert portion of the meal, and they pass up all the stuff that's actually going to do their body good leading up to it, right? Passive listening goes something like this. You tell, you tell your kids, and this was you know, something that happened to me, I never cashed in on this because I got good grades, but my parents made the offer to my, my siblings. If you make all A's and B's on your next report card, I will, just like you did when you were little, I will give you 50 bucks next month. I don't know if anyone's parents ever did that for them, like, hey, for every A, I will give you money. Maybe you've told that to your kids. I will give you 50 bucks next month, but then your kids hear this since you made all A's and B's on your report card when you were in kindergarten, I'm gonna give you 50 bucks a month for the next 10 years. Right? They, they, they heard what you said, and they totally twisted that to, be, to fit their narrative, right? That's, that's passive listening, picking what you want out of the conversation. James continues with, don't just be a passive listener. Don't just listen. Do what it says. And doing, this is, this is more than a one-time act of obedience. This is a lifestyle. It implies being a continual doer. Not mindless action, but obeying with all of your being, your spirit, your soul, and mind. But, but they go hand in hands. Sometimes if you go and do without the listening, like you put something together without the instruction manual. Guys, we've never done that, right? And then you end up with a piece on backwards or screws on the ground. You go, oh, I wonder where those are supposed to go, right? You have all the extra parts. So you, you've got to listen to what is being said. You've got to get the instruction, and then you've got to do what the instructions say. They go hand in hand. We need them both. Now, John MacArthur compares listening without doing to auditing a class in college. I don't know if anyone has ever experienced that or experienced someone doing that. But sometimes in college, you can audit a class. And audit is, is you go to the class, you get to attend the class, listen to what the lecturer says, but you don't have to really take notes if you don't want to. You don't have to write the papers. You don't have to do the tests. You don't have to take the final. Sounds like a dream, right? Right? You just get to go and you get to listen. In other words, you listen to the course, but you don't do anything with what you hear. There's no accountability. You know what happens when you audit a class? You know how much credit you get for that class at the end of the day? You get no credit. Zero credit for taking the class. James is warning people in this passage. He's saying, don't be a spiritual auditor. Don't don't be someone who's just going to say, okay, I'm going to dive into this. I'm going to read it. Moving on. So don't audit the book. Let this book be something that you practice. Let it be something that you do. When we hear the word but don't act on the word, what we've done is we've taken the the greatest instruction manual ever written, the the, the greatest guide for our life ever written, and we've turned it just into a college-audited textbook of information that really we don't have to do anything with instead of making it what it really is, the living, acting, breathing word of God. It just becomes information instead. Now, you may have heard this parable before, uh, Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. But instead of starting with the major passage in James, we're going to start with this parable in Matthew. So if you turn to Matthew 21, starting in verse 28, it says this. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. We've never heard that from our kids, right? I don't want to. Yet later he changed his mind, and he went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? The first, they said. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. In this passage, Jesus is making this powerful point about the difference of listening and doing, or listening and doing, and how they go hand in hand. Jesus says that the tax collectors and prostitutes will be entering the kingdom ahead of the chief priests and Pharisees because they listened and responded to the message of John the Baptist. If there's not a bigger plot twist in the Bible right there, there it is. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, the chief priests and leaders, and Jesus says, they are making it in before you. That blew their minds. That was not what they were expecting to hear. The twist of all twists, the one that society looks down on, the sinners, the outcasts, the ones that people say, there is no chance, Jesus says, they're listening. And not only are they listening, they're doing something about it. You guys aren't doing anything, so they're getting it. You guys are missing out. They were the ones who listened and did what they were told. So with that in mind, the important question for this whole passage is the one where it says this. Which of the two did his father's will? Which of these two sons, who did the father's will? And I don't know about you, but, but this, this parable makes me think long and hard about what son do I resemble most? Who, who do I resemble? Do I resemble the one that says, I don't want to do it, but then you go and you do it, or the one that says, yeah, I'll get on that, and then you're mine. Someday. <laughs> Someday, sometime, it's really inconvenient time for me right now, Jesus. Can you ask me that next week? today is busy? Am I hearing his voice through the encouragement of the Bible? Am I listening to the words of Jesus in my life? Does listening even matter if there's no response? Does listening even matter if there's no response? We're going to revisit and unpack a passage we went through three weeks ago, James 1, 19 to 27 today. James chapter 1, 19 to 27. And it says this, my dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man that he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not and is not a forgetful here, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Our section here begins with with James addressing his beloved brothers, he says. Or said another way, he could be saying, this church family that I love, this church, the church that I care so deeply for. Like I said, he was a good pastor. He cared so deeply about them, deep enough to be totally blunt when he needed with truths that follow through the rest of his letter. And when we get to James 2, 3, and 4, you'll see more of these blunt truths coming out because he cares so deeply for what they need to be doing right now. He shares the truth. Beginning with the encouragement, though, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I know that he says this not only because, you know, the word of God comes through all the way to today, but in that time, he's going to say some things, and we'll see in the next chapter, he's going to say things that people could say, but what about this? But, but what about now? I, I can't do this. So he's saying, be quick to listen. You know, when you read this letter that he's mailing out, he's like, don't send me a hate mail back, just listen to it for a second. Listen, Be quick to, be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger, and then do this. Now, it's all been said before. Uh, I've, I've said this. We have how many ears and how many mouths? We have how many ears? Not a trick question, right? All right. And how many mouths? So what should you be doing twice as much of? Yeah, we've all, you're like listening, I know. So yeah, you probably, people are probably having nightmares of their parents telling them the same thing right now, right? We have two ears, one mouth. We should be doing twice as much listening as we should be speaking, And I'm sure we all know this advice would prove itself quite useful if we would respond accordingly. And James spends a lot of his letter addressing the words that we say. When we're actually going to take action, when we say it's time to move, James says, but there's ways to do it and ways not to do it, starting with what you say about it. And he uses this powerful phrase, this very, very powerful term called the tongue. The tongue, the most proportioned, strongest muscle in your body both physically and emotionally, your tongue. And he gives us this invitation in our verse for the day. Slow down, listen carefully, respond accordingly. In other words, stop, listen, and do it right. 19 through 20, he said, I'll say it again, my dearly loved brothers, understand this, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Now, we can listen and do, but we can also listen and do it wrong. We can say, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do, but you can do it the totally wrong way and, and totally mess up the mission you're trying to accomplish, right? And one of those ways is when we say, all right, I need to do this and I do it now, but you do it angrily. No one here has ever done that, right? Reacted out of anger when, when you know you should have been the, quick to listen, slow to speak, and then you act, but you totally act with anger. And when anger leads to that sin, that's when things get messed up. That's when it doesn't reproduce the righteousness of God. And, and this is actually referred to in Scripture as unrighteous anger. Because we learn that, that anger is an emotion that God even feels anger. Anger is not the sin. Anger is an emotion we feel. What we do with it, if we're when I'm, you know, talking about listening and doing, what we do with our anger, that's what can either lead to righteousness or that can lead to unrighteousness. That can lead to some bad actions. And we see it multiple times in Scripture. To name a few of them, we see Cain and Esau in the book of Genesis. We see Moses in the book of Exodus. We see Herod in the New Testament. We see these people get angry and sometimes we see their anger do something that is not along the right path. Cain got angry and killed his brother. Not the right way to respond with your anger. Esau got angry, betrayed his brother not a right kind of anger. And we, we see more examples of this throughout Scripture. We see anger lead to things and lead to people doing things that is the wrong way to respond. And I don't have time to dive into everybody's story today on anger, but we see them use ways where anger does not work out. And what's bad about it is the way we express it. Sometimes it comes and, and we, we commit to what we're about to do, and it can be bad and dangerous. Some men disown or disclaim family because of anger. They disclaim children. They commit acts of murder. This kind of anger is, I mean, easy to say this, right? This kind of anger is bad. That is not good anger. Anger shouldn't be expressed in that aggression and hostility. But anger also has good and useful purposes. Anger has led to to civil rights movements and led for equality for, for different people of different ethnicities throughout the years. Anger can be used in ways that when channeled can spark incredible movements across the world. People have, have been angry with a with government oppression and led revolutions that have led their countries to freedom. Anger can be used in righteous ways, but anger can also lead to sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Think that. Ephesians says, be angry and do not sin. So it's not saying being angry is the, the, the wrong thing. It's saying if you're going to do something. Make sure you're doing the right thing with your anger. Anger can lead to good, godly action. But if not careful, it can lead to the wrong action. James knows this, and he applies it, and he addresses it in verse 21 in our passage. He says, Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, James is, admon- is admonishing his hearers to set aside the, the, the filthiness and the rampant wickedness, none of which you get to take into the kingdom of heaven. But instead, he says, receive with meekness this implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Not our actions, impl- the, the meekness of the implanted word that is able to save your souls. In response to this, uh, theologian John Piper, he says this, so the word of God is implanted in us, and it is at work in us, and it abides in us. And now James one twenty one takes that and says, and it saves us. can't easily overstate how profoundly powerful and important the Word of God is for our lives. How important this book is. And I'll say, if, if, this, if the Word of God doesn't rank up there with your most cherished possessions, then we're, we have a priority issue and a reality check that we need to do in our hearts because there's so much in here that it needs to be what rules and guides our thoughts and our actions. Nothing apart from God himself is more important than the word he gave us to dwell in daily. And we've got to receive this word into our lives. We've got to learn how to throw off everything else, all the filthiness, the hindrance that entangles us, and the deception that looks to steal and kill and destroy our lives. But that comes with what James is saying is listening to what God says and then doing it. If we're not going to be doing it, we're going to be acting in the wrong way. We're going to let our anger overcome. We're going to let our actions overtake what this says we should be doing instead. That's why it's so important to listen to it and then do it. And when we do that, we get this, we get this response from, from God. We get this call and we're encouraged to act. We're called to action. I, I, love, I love that phrase. Um, something that you always learned in, in, uh, in school and in sports is, is you, you get all this information but then you have to go do it. You, you get called this action step, right? What are your next action steps? When, when we make goals for, for ministry and goals in your job, it's one thing to write something down but, but you gotta take the action step. How are you gonna make this happen? So in our lives, we get the same thing. We are called to take action now. And many theologians believe this to be the central message of the letter when it says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Can you imagine this? A football player throwing the most perfectly passed ball, wide open, catches the ball, he grabs it, and then he stops. He has the next action step, right? He knows what he's supposed to do. He knows that it is his job now run into that end zone. But what if he were to catch the ball and that's where it ended? He just stopped. Or a doctor delivers a perfectly healthy baby and hands it to the parents, and the parents then stare at the baby for the rest of their lives. That's it, just stare. There's next steps, right? If, if, you, if you want this baby to make it, there's, there's steps you've got to do. Just like that athlete, if, there's, if he wants his team to win, he wants to get there, there's steps he's got to take. We have action steps. And these examples now sound odd. It's hard to imagine them happening. It's hard to imagine that player just catching the ball and stopping. But if you look up sports bloopers, you see some crazy things. But this is the point James is trying to make too. We know what we need to do, and he expands on it in the next verse. In verse 23, he says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a man just looking at his own face in a mirror. To simply receive the word, the message, or the teaching, the the encouragement, the devotional, just to simply receive it and listen to it, this isn't God's best for you. His best response, I think, is found in your response to what you hear. Your response to what you, you read. Your response, what are you going to do? Now, when James wrote this letter, it's, it's interesting he uses this phrase to look at his own face in a mirror because back then, um, mirrors were typically nothing more than a highly polished piece of brass or bronze, or if you were just living the high life, you had some silver or gold that you could look at and see a, a reflection of yourself, right? Obviously, a mirror, a big old luxury mirror that we have was not the case back then. But a mirror like this, a piece of polished bronze or, or silver, would provide a distorted look when you look back at it. So what's interesting is that the, the word James uses to describe look means more than a quick glance. In, in the original translation, this, this translation is looking carefully, which is if you're losing a piece of brass or bronze, that is the only way you can see a reflection is if you look really, really careful at it. You're going to have to really study and, and find the right place because it'll be like being in a house of mirrors at a carnival, right? Right? It's going to be all distorted, and you're going to be like, well, I look funny. I, I say that every time I look in the mirror anyways. But, but when you, you look at the, the piece of bronze, it's going to look really awkward and weird. So you have to look intently. Look intently means to, to bend over and carefully examine something at its clearest possible vantage point. Look intently into God's word like you're looking for gold. You're going to examine it. You're going to look really, really careful. Why would someone spend that much energy and exert that much focus on a book? Why would we look at this book and say, this, this is more than just listening, this is more than just reading. What about this book means I'm gonna dive everything into it. You may love to read. I, I love to read. And you might think, well, if it's a really good book, I, I can revisit it. I, I'm the type of person where I've, I have a bookshelf full of books and I've read some of them multiple times. I love to read. I, when, when I read, I get so sucked into the book that I lose track of time. I start feeling like I'm actually in the book and it, it's really, really fun. But if you like to read, You find a book that's good, but if you're like 55% of Americans over the age of 13 who haven't read a book in the past year, it may take a bit more convincing for you. That's a crazy stat, right? 55% over 13 haven't read a book in a year. So whether you're an avid reader or not, what on earth would cause somebody to look so intently in this book to say, I have to do what this says as if my life depended on it? Why this book? Why, why this 66-book composure that we have right here? The short answer is because it's more than a book. It's more than just a book. James describes it as the perfect law that gives all freedom. Those are pretty big shoes to fill when you compare it to every other book written, right? It's a book that contains God's commands. It's a book that we believe is perfect, infallible, without errors. It is the perfect guide for us with the perfect God and his perfect word speaking into our lives from it. His perfect commandments. It has the power to bring more freedom into our lives than anything else. That makes it more than just a book. It's more than just ink on paper. These words have authority. These words have power because of who spoke these words into existence. And you, you might say, all right, c- come on, preacher, how... how Give me some more info on this. How can I believe that this 66 books written written over 1,500 years ago by over 40 people in three languages, how can this even be reliable? How can we know James even knows what he's talking about, that when it was translated to to us in, in English, that it even holds up today? Why should we do what it says when so many people have had their hands on it? Why is this the book worth doing? Well, consider this. Uh, There's a book called The Faith, Given Once for All by Charles Coulson and Harold Fickett, and it defined the textual integrity of the Bible, noting that there are 24,947 ancient manuscripts in the New Testament alone, the oldest dating back to AD 150. Scholars have more ancient manuscripts to work from than any other writing. 14,000 are of the Old Testament alone. That's a lot of history working here. Uh, Homer's Iliad, a poem set during the Trojan War, is the next closest thing. You know how many manuscripts are on the, the, the Iliad? 600. 600. The accuracy of the ancient manuscripts composing of the scriptures is remarkable. And why? Because Jewish tradition provides one answer. According to the Hebrew practice, only eyewitness testimony was accepted. Only eyewitness testimony was accepted. And when copying documents, the Jews would copy one letter at a time, not word by word, not phrase by phrase, not sentence by sentence, letter by letter. The evidence supporting the authority of the Bible is extraordinary. uh, Before the end of the 1950s, no less than 25,000 biblical sites had been sustained by the archaeological discoveries, and there has not been one single archaeological discovery in history that has disproven anything written in Scripture. That's how powerful this book is. It is more accurate than the most accurate history books that we read in school. It's crazy when you think of how much went into making sure this book was, was, was persevered through its tests and trials and how true it comes today. And James' point is clear. When you're a hearer and not a doer of God's word, you may be actually listening carefully to what God's word says, but listening carefully is not translated into intentionally doing. And based off of what we know about the word, this is the book worth doing what it says. This is the book where we get to say, wow, there's so much truth, so much validity, so much historical accuracy, so much power that we don't just get to listen and ignore. We get to listen and have the privilege of doing what it says. And then we get to see the benefits of what happens when we follow through with what what Jesus tells us to do in this book as well. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, we can all understand what that means. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. As believers, we're we're called to be these people of action, right? For example, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 begins with the word, go. That's an action step. That's a do step right there. It begins with the word, go and do this. And as we learned last week, we got to learn to persevere because when we go, we're going to hit those trials. But when we hit those trials, we get to have the joy of knowing who wins through these trials. Who wins when we listen, when we act, when we go and do, we get to take part in that victory as well. James one twenty five. he encourages us. He says, But the one who looks under the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Don't forget the word. Don't take your eyes off of Christ. Persevere in the calling and respond to the message that we've been given, which is a message of grace, love, and freedom, and ultimately victory. And some last thoughts on James chapter 1. To finish off our section, James gives some incredible practical instruction in verses 26 and 27. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to discuss this more in depth as we move forward in James, but simply put, our words matter when we're listening, when we're acting and doing, when we go, never forget that your words strongly matter. In verse 26, he very bluntly says it. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This person's religion is worthless. There's so much power in the tongue. I'm sure we've all said things we regret, and I know I speak for most everyone in the room when I say that there are things I wish I could take back. Things that I wish I could say, but once you say it, it's out there. We live in an age where once you type it and hit enter, it's out there. Even when you hit delete, someone else screenshotted it, someone else reposted it, it's out there. Maybe you told your parents at one point when you were a kid, I hate you. I remember the first time that my kids looked at, looked at me or, or looked, at, looked at their mom and said, you don't love me. I remember those things, even though we've talked about it, and I know they love me or they're really, really good liars about it. But I know that they love me. You know, it's, I still remember the moment they said that for the first time. It was a powerful thing. Words have power. We got to have a good long conversation on what it would look like in our house if I didn't love them. And if I did hate them, or if they really did hate me. We've all been there. We've all said things. We've all said things we wish we hadn't, but James is talking about here, he's not talking about the occasional slip-up or the, or the foolishness that we may have, but rather the unwillingness to restrain your words, to know that I know I shouldn't say this, but then you just go and you do it anyway. It's like when, when someone says, oh, that was all good, but it almost makes me forget everything they said ahead of time, right? Because you know they're going to say something's going to hurt. Sometimes... When you have that inability to restrain your words, the, the unwillingness to see the power that God has built up to, for you to use with your tongue to build them up or tear them down, that's when we can get into trouble with our words. And that's how we can say we're acting on the word, but we're doing it the wrong way. Be cautious with your words. Build people up with your mouth. The person who, who won't go see an anger management counselor the person who won't receive correction for, for vulgarity. This person, if they also profess to say, yes, I love Jesus, and this is just the way I talk, James is talking about that right here, saying there's an active, conscious, there's a conscious decision, a choice to make with your words. And we're deceiving ourselves when we think that our words are not that big of a deal. And conversely, if you don't want to have a worthless relationship, but rather a pure and undefiled one, then like we said a couple weeks ago, It says, visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Keep yourselves unstained from the world. That's putting the words of Christ into action. His words are powerful too. Not just our words, his words are powerful. And if we're going to live this out, if we're going to be people of action and people that do things, we've got to not just act on on our words, we've got to act on his words. We've got to say, Jesus said this, so I am going to now put it into action. Because his words are powerful. Another way to say it today would be this. Stop talking about the good we're going to do. Stop talking about what we're going to go do for others and start doing it. Stop saying you see people and do something for the people that you see. Live out the mission God has called us to be a part of. Don't just see the mission. Don't just say the mission. Do the mission. Do what Scripture says. Visit the needy. Visit people that are broken. Invite people to this family. Invite people to to say to church to say, hey, we've, we've got a group of people that celebrates and, and prays and loves, and I want you to be a part of this community that can build you up because we serve someone who loves you and wants to be a part of your life. Love people who are far from God. Go make some non-Christian friends. Say so again. Go make some non-Christian friends. If you don't have any non-Christian friends in your life, man, there's a whole lot of them out there. Make some non-Christian friends. That's our mission. We've got got to be influencers for the non-Christian crowd. We've got to go do something about it so they can become these Christ followers. They can have this relationship with God that we love and we know to be so real. Don't be influenced by the non-Christian friends. Influence the non-Christian friends. Be the person that they look at and say, man, there's something about you, and you get to point them to Jesus. Show your actions. Show his love. Show, live, and do the Christ-changed life. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. There are some things that we can listen to and things that we can do. Some of these, as I as I spout this list off, they're not going to be on the screen. So just get your hands ready to write. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Some things we can do now: seek justice, seek justice in the world, share His word. These are things the Bible says to do, and it's it's time to just it's time to put the listening part into action. Share the word. Serve one another. There's an opportunity where someone needs something. Man, serve one another. Live it out. Do what God says. Serve one another. Be responsible with your finances. This means being generous, giving, tithing. Be biblical with the resources God has given you to steward. Do what He says with your finances. And lastly, something we can all do, and something I think we all can do more of love your neighbor. Say it again love your neighbor that can often be the hardest thing that we have to do. Say it with me, love your neighbor. You guys realize how powerful our lives can be when we live that one line out? When we get to go out and say, hey, I'm gonna listen and I'm gonna do, and what am I gonna do today? I'm gonna go love my neighbor. Your neighbor that's blaring music at two in the morning, doesn't wanna go to bed. Your neighbor that has the political sign that is 100% opposite of your political sign. The neighbor that flipped you off because you cut him off on the road. Love your neighbor. When you go and say, I'm going to love my neighbor, it will change every conversation you have, every interaction you have, and it will be something that can lift somebody to a place that they never thought they could go because you're doing what the Word of God says. Not necessarily what you want to do. You know, sometimes you look at neighbors and you can say, I don't want to love them. I don't want to love my neighbor. We, we had neighbors that liked to, to sell certain products that made the area smell really bad and had you know people driving weird cars when we lived in California come up and exchange brown paper bags. We had to love our neighbor. When that same neighbor went on vacation and their dog was barking at three in the morning, had to love our neighbor. Did not want to love that neighbor. In fact, I wanted to love that neighbor out of that house. I love you so much you're gonna move. We ended up moving, but I'm saying... We need to love our neighbors. And when we do that, when we put this phrase from listening into doing, man, we can love people and show them an incredible love that God has for them. Amen? I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up and invite you all to stand with me as we close out this morning. Admittedly, this passage of Scripture, this whole book of James, this is a tough pill to swallow because it involves so much doing. So much doing amongst, amongst busy lives. And there's, there's, uh, if, we, if we're not careful, we can look at it, we can feel guilty. But I don't want us to feel guilty. What I want us to feel is conviction. There's a difference. <laughs> guilty is going to make us sit there and wallow in shame. Conviction is going to lead us to action to do something about it. And that's what James is really saying here. Be called to action. Be called to go do. And consider in our lives, when we truly stop to consider what things we're actually doing, how it can respond with what we're hearing. So let me ask you these. Do my words align with this Christian witness that I profess? Am I letting my anger turn into sin? Am I obstinate, meaning, am I unwilling to change? What have I done lately in response to my faith? Do I talk more than I act? Does listening matter if I don't respond? These are the few questions that cross my mind as I unpack this in James. And I'm sure you'll have more that you can add to the list. Maybe some that you started asking yourself as we were going through today. But in the midst of conviction that comes in the passage like this, it's important to remember the heart behind all of it, which is the very heart of God. The same God that is compassionate, the same God that loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you. This is the God that loves you and wants you to take action to show the world that he took action for them. Be realistic on your faith. Don't just talk about it. Don't just read about it. We get to do it. Amen? God, I thank you for today. God, I thank you that, that we get to serve you. God, we get to love you, and we get to live out our faith in a world that needs you so desperately. God, I pray that as we leave here today, if uh, I don't want us feeling guilty, but I want us to feel convicted. A godly conviction that drives us to reach our neighbors, reach our community. Invite them here. Invite them to a life with you above all else. God, and I pray that as we hear your word, as we act on your word, you do a number in our hearts as well because we're serving you and you alone. So, God, I pray that your will is seen, your glory is shown and just revealed by all and you're part of everything we do. We thank you, God, we love you. And everybody said, amen. amen.